If you lead a team of over 700 people, what skills would you need to bring to the table to help them collaborate effectively? In today's episode, we chat with Katrina Alcorn, General Manager of Design at IBM, about how she develops partnerships across her organization to resolve conflicts and get aligned. We also talked to Katrina about the challenges that large teams face in remote and hybrid environments, how her training in journalism influences her work as a leader, and what she learned about living a balanced life from writing her book, Maxed Out, American Moms on the Brink. You may not have a team of 700, but you can still take away plenty of lessons from Katrina's experiences. Thanks for listening. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Katrina Alcorn, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Thanks for having me. So you have recently stepped into a new role at IBM. IBM, you know, if listeners haven't been paying attention, has made huge investments in growing and expanding its design practice, its design team. It's one of the largest design teams on the planet of any companies, to our knowledge. And I think that remains true today. And this past year, you stepped into a new role, an executive role, 700 people on your team. And that's a lot in regular times, but during a pandemic, it's like a new level of complexity. Could you talk to us about the new role and the vision for what you're doing and how you're navigating that transition during the pandemic? You know, really, I'm wearing two hats in this role. So one hat is the 700 people on my team hat that you've talked about, where I have all the product design teams, you know, on my direct team. And we are very focused on how to improve our software products at IBM. But then the other hat I wear is really general manager of design for IBM proper. And that's the 3000 plus person design team across our different functions, across consulting, software, hardware, and even our corporate functions. We now have design executives in all of our corporate functions. So I find I go back and forth, but in the general manager role, really what I'm looking at is how do we drive pervasive excellence in design across the entire company? And, you know, this is a business imperative. IBM is in the middle of a transition. We're establishing ourselves as a leader in emerging technology and hyper cloud and AI technology. 
And our designers have a key role to play there. I would go so far as to say design can make or break our strategy because we're only as good as the products and services we put out in the market and designers have a key role to play in that. Luckily, I was managing a big team in the pandemic before I stepped into this role at IBM. I was at another global software company and we learned a lot about how to manage in a pandemic, how to manage through kind of, you know, historic moments in sort of humanity around things that were happening around social justice and, and of course, the pandemic and climate change and all these issues that were coming up. So I, that part actually has not been hard. You know, I think as a leader, I am always looking for ways to make sure that people on my team feel heard and that can happen. We have the technology. We can make that happen. There are lots of ways we make that happen now, even if we're not face-to-face. The challenge for me in taking on this role is we relocated when I took the role. I'd spent 20 years in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. We moved, I'm now five minutes from the uh, headquarters of IBM in Armonk, New York. And moving in a pandemic with a family is a whole (laughs) different ball of wax. You know, we needed to, you know, buy furniture. We bought a bigger house and it's just like one example, but shipping delays and, you know, people not showing up and labor shortages, it's kind of made the move just a logistic challenge that I didn't expect, but we're getting through it. How old are your kids, Trina? The youngest just started high school. And then I have one who is starting college now. And then I also have a stepdaughter who is back in the Bay Area. She's a young adult in San Francisco, has her own apartment. Yeah. So, you know, that's a challenge too. I mean, moving a family, we had spent our whole family life in one house. So this is a big shift for everyone. And, you know, when you're new to a job, to a community, you want to go out and meet people and we, you know, establish new connections, but it's a challenge right now to do that with COVID numbers surging. You wrote a whole book about kind of balancing the challenges of family and a career, which I'm sure is filled with great advice. Did you find yourself like following that advice or was there, were there things just like, wow, did you have to rethink anything? And maybe you could just share some of the insights that you have both from your book, which is called Maxed Out American Moms on the Brink, and as well as anything else that you've learned in the time in between. Yeah, that book and kind of the message of the book has become a key part of my leadership style and that kind of the point of view that I bring. So in a nutshell, when my kids who are now teenagers and young adults, when they were babies, I burned out at work. I did the thing that so many women, especially, but some men too, do where you're growing in your career and you're growing in your family and you're trying to be all things to all people. And in some ways, this is a uniquely American problem where many of us find ourselves in a situation where we're supposed to do our jobs and put that first, you know, as if we don't have families, but also the standards of parenting have just gone crazy in the last few decades. So on the other hand, we're supposed to raise our families as if we don't have jobs. Mothers now spend more time with their kids, fun fact, than they did in the sixties when most married women with children didn't work. So somehow we're trying to square a circle. We're trying to do something that's Herculean in effort. And it's not that it can't be done, but I I think we often underplay just how impossible it can be sometimes, how these things can be in conflict. So anyway, I wrote about my personal experience because I felt like there's a lot of kind of academic or theoretical discussion about what's holding women back in their careers and, you know, work-life balance. But it's a whole different thing to kind of 
dive into the messy, gritty reality of what it means day to day to try to make this work when it's not working. And for me, it was a real health issue. I mean, I had to stop working. Burnout was a real sort of manifested very physically for me. But when writing the book, I ended up talking to all kinds of women with very similar stories. And what I found is it was a very common experience. And so I felt like part of the importance of writing this story was kind of to break a taboo and talk about this isn't just like a fun joke that we make about, oh, the impossibility of having it all. Like This is real and it's affecting people's lives and it even affects our health. And my message to women was, you know, if you're feeling maxed out, you're not alone and it doesn't have to be this way. There's a lot that we can do, in, especially in the workplace, to make our two parts of our lives more compatible. So kind of fast forward, you know, I guess it's been eight years since the book came out and this is a big part of how I lead. This is a part of how I show up as a senior executive at a giant corporation. I feel like I have a responsibility to kind of carry that awareness of what people with families are dealing with and make sure that we create room for their humanity, for all of our humanity. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like what are the practical kind of tactical things that you employ in your leadership approach with your teams? And if you have stories of how your team has benefited from that perspective, that would be great to hear. So there's the standard things around flexibility and giving people autonomy over how and when they get their work done. And there's a lot that's been written on this. There's a management strategy called ROW that I'm a big fan of. It stands for results only work environments. And it benefits not just parents, but anyone who wants to have work-life balance, where it's a management strategy. You're setting a clear bar, you have high standards and you hold people accountable, but none of this babysitting about, you know, what time did you come in the office or are you at your desk enough? It's not about that. So there's that set of things, but I'll give you a really specific example in the pandemic. So, you know, there was this period in the early pandemic where we were all trying to figure out what's, what's going on here. And the, in California, anyway, the schools shut down. And I think in most states they did. And daycare shut down. And somehow parents were supposed to keep logging in their eight plus hours a day and being productive. And as if nothing was changing in their lives. And simultaneously, you know, they're trying to Zoom school their kids. They're trying to provide daycare, which is a you know, any of us who have done that, that's a full-time job and it's skilled labor. So one of the things my company did at the time, this was before I was at IBM, is we offered this paid benefit. It was a part-time leave benefit for parents who needed that extra time to, you know, support Zoom school or whatever. And it's great that we offered that benefit. But what I found when I started digging in was there were people on my team who didn't feel they could take it. You know, like I had some single moms on my team and this is so common. I felt it back in the day when my kids were younger, but people just felt like they're cheating on their job if they take the time for their families. So I just tried to normalize that. You know, I just, when we would have our all hands, I would talk about this is a benefit and it's there for you to use it. And we want you to take care of yourself and we want you to take the long view and think about your health and prioritize your health, just like you prioritize the health of your family and your coworkers. So I, I think some of this is just about normalizing the experience that people have and letting it be okay to do the things they need to do to, to take care of themselves. Do you think that this sort of 
high-pressure passage of history. People were already maxed out before the pandemic, as evidenced by your book that came out eight years before, and the pandemic takes it up to 11. Do you think it will change the way that many companies and many leaders approach managing their teams or how we think about work? I think it has to. I mean, it's it's already happening. You know, I, I can't count the number of executives who I've heard make statements about, I wasn't a fan of working from home. I didn't think we could trust our teams. And now I see, you know, so I think the veil has been lifted. I think it's too soon to say what impact it will have long-term. I'm very concerned about setbacks for women in the labor force and in, you know, all the issues around like pay gap and just gender equality. We've seen a record loss of women in the labor force just in the pandemic. And it's a direct result of the stuff we're talking about. Katrina, I'm curious, you know, in writing this book, and I believe you've done other writing, you know, Aaron and I also write together both professionally and, and on the side. And I'm, I'm just curious how you feel that the act of writing and practicing writing kind of influences your leadership style and influences the way that you, you know, view design and, and design teams. I've always felt like my superpower in the tech world is really comes from my background of being a journalist. So I was a journalist and a documentary filmmaker. That's where I did my graduate work. I had this whole very short but exciting career. I made a PBS show that was broadcast on many stations. And when I switched to tech, I noticed that these skills around writing and speaking and just putting the right words to thoughts were missing in our industry. And so I do feel like that's something that set me apart over the years. And I'm still figuring out how to use those skills in this environment. So as an example, I, you know, so I started this job at IBM six months ago. Amazing job. This is a dream job for me. I'm pretty sure it's the biggest design team in the world, this design practice at IBM. And I should say, we, my team also runs the Enterprise Design Thinking Program, which is really a model in the design industry for how you approach human-centered design at scale. So that's a program not just for our 3,000 designers, but for our 300,000 IBM employees, because everyone needs to think like a human-centered <laughs> designer, right? This is what we're trying to do. So I, I started this job, you know, in the pandemic, I got to meet my team for one week during that brief period before the Delta variant took over and then Omicron came. So I haven't had a lot of face-to-face -face with people. Now, normally I would be using the same design thinking processes, you know, in person, kind of collaborative, messy, get a bunch of post-its on the wall, cycle through ideas together that I would use to designing anything. Right now, I'm designing design. I'm designing the next chapter of design with my team for IBM. But it was hard to do that because we're not face-to-face. -face. So we could do some of that through you know, virtual whiteboarding and, and that kind of thing. But at some point, I just started writing. You know, I'd done a lot of listening, a lot of learning. And I just started writing out my ideas and putting them in blog posts as a way to get feedback. After the second blog post, I think it was, my team came to me and they said, can you keep doing this? Can you just keep writing about the vision? Because when you write it down, it like it gives us time to think about it and then we can react to it. And like this is a great way <laughs> to innovate. So I feel like we invented this new process. I ended up writing a series of five blog posts that are on Medium. 
it provided the framework for the vision that we're now kind of formalizing in a presentation that I'll be giving very soon all over IBM. And it really kind of codifies what we're trying to do. Are those public posts that anybody can see on Medium? They are, yeah. Okay. Yeah, if you Google Katrina Alcorn on Medium, you'll you'll find them. (laughs) That's great. That's a, a very smart way of bringing people together. And at an executive level, that's sort of like, that's the job. A big part of the job is helping people see a shared vision, buy in. Sometimes it's resolving disagreements and so forth and just getting people to collaborate. And sometimes, you know, that can be challenging. I wonder if in your experience leading large organizations, like how did you learn those skills? Your journalism background, storytelling background, surely that's a key part of it. But then there's also a bit of a school of hard knocks, learn it on the job. Could you Talk to us a little bit about how you learn these skills and what other skills besides storytelling do you employ to be successful? Yeah, I think you answered for me. It was the school of hard knocks. (laughs) And, you know, you talk with a lot of design leaders, so you probably see this, but most of us who rise the ranks into executive roles, most of us don't have MBAs. We didn't go to design leadership school. (laughs) No one taught us how to manage a team. The first time I had to fire an employee, I literally broke out in hives all over my body. <laughs> you know, like we learn by doing, but I've been doing it for a long time. And I'm, I think the thing that motivates me is I'm really interested in solving problems. In fact, I feel like that's a higher order of what I do than design. I feel like, you know, my role as a writer, my role as a designer, my role as a mother, my role as a leader of a large team is really about kind of finding creative solutions to very hard problems. I don't know how you teach people that. I think experiential learning is the way. How about with disagreements within your team or maybe even disagreements like with your peers in the executive suite? How do you navigate those situations? Yeah, those are tough. Part of the reason they're tough is that I think design is still not well understood. I go back to the importance of storytelling and of being very precise and clear and effective with our language, because I often find myself in a position where I'm assessing where my peers are at. And and this isn't just at IBM, this is my whole career. And then trying to kind of meet them where they're at and help them see at the next level, here's what design can do for you. It's not just about fonts and colors. It's not just about making things pretty. There's a whole level of strategic advantage we can unlock if you will partner with us to do it. I've seen my share of conflict. You asked about conflict. And I think, you know, what I've tried to do through my career is apply those skills that as designers, we have those empathy skills to my stakeholders and partners to understand you know, maybe I'm sensing some hostility here, but let's get underneath that. Where is that coming from? What is it that you're afraid of? And then how can I address it at the root level and see if we can make common cause? Because at the end of the day, we usually have the same best interests at heart. You know, at the end of the day, we want to make our company successful. We want our teams to be motivated and happy, and we want morale to be high, and we want to enjoy our our jobs. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. 
It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit crashplan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DesignBetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DesignBetter. As we've gone through this cycle from fully remote, back to the office, to hybrid, back to remote in some cases, there's going to be inevitably some challenges with collaboration. Have you seen the tools the designers, developers use to collaborate change? Is that work environment changes in any way, consolidate or anything along those lines? The tools for collaboration, I mean, obviously video conferencing is something we used before the pandemic, but now it's a must have, you know, I don't know any team that can live without it. And then the, you know, the virtual whiteboarding, having ways to collaborate virtually on a screen that takes the place of that hands-on 
activity that it's so great to be able to do that face-to-face, but it's very, very difficult to do that now. So I think I've seen the teams I work with get just much more skillful at how to run, you know, remote, for lack of better word, brainstorming or design thinking type activities. You spent time earlier in your career at agencies, places like Hot Studio, which probably not all of our listeners will know Hot Studio, but it's legendary. The folks who were there, Maria Giudis, whom we've spoken with in the past, people like Meredith Black were there, and you also were at Huge. Agencies tend to be places where, you know, it's kind of like trial by fire. You talked about problem solving being something you're passionate about. If you want to learn to be a problem solver, an agency is a place to do that. Could you talk to us about your experience working at Hot and Huge and what it taught you that you use today? Yeah. Well, you know, even before I worked at Hot, if we go way back in the archives, some folks in the Bay Area who are old enough will remember an agency called Phoenix Pop, which was also legendary in its day. And it was an agency that catered to startups. And of course, when the dot-com bust hit and all the startups ran out of money, Phoenix Pop got hit. But I, that was really my early, early training ground. And then, of course, I built and led the UX practice at Hot Studio. I was there for six years. I consider Maria Giudisa, you know, formative teacher and mentor. She taught me so much, and she's just such a talented sort of force of nature. She's awesome. She is, and she's an interesting person because she's so uniquely herself and unapologetically herself. And, I mean, that's always inspiring, but then also seeing a woman kind of being quirky and, you know, just being so unapologetically comfortable with her authentic self has been really great for me. But you asked about agencies as a training ground. And I think the skills that I learned mostly from Phoenix Pop and Hot, I was at Huge very briefly, but I was just covering for their VP of UX when she was on maternity leave. That was just almost like a contract I did for a short period. But I really spent a lot of time in the other two. And It sort of goes back to what I learned in journalism too, the ability to very quickly assess a problem, articulate the problem, figure out what you need to know, what questions you need to get answers to solve the problem, and then solve it and show tangible progress and do it on a deadline. That is so powerful. I cannot underscore enough how powerful that is. And now, you know, I went in-house, what was it, maybe seven years ago, GE and then Autodesk, and now I'm at IBM. And I can see that. I can see that with our in-house designers, that there's an orientation, the people who have been consultants for some period of their career, there's a certain sort of confidence in driving a solution to deadline and a boldness that I think is really, really helpful to have. Do we dig into that transition? Because I think that's fascinating to go from these relatively small organizations where communication is fluid and easy and you walk over to a person and get things sorted out very quickly. And then you go to GE and you go to Autodesk and you go to IBM. These are massive, massive corporations. How's communication different, you know, as you transition to a larger organization? Yeah, it was a major culture change to go in-house. I think maybe one of the big shifts that I had to make was when you're a consultant in a small company, consulting to other companies, 
you're kind of center stage. You're on stage a lot. You're performing for a client. You're giving them confidence that you're the right company to solve this problem. And then you're, you're getting their buy-in and it's very much about you, you as a influencer, as a thought leader, and then you go in-house and it's much more about we it's, you know, often the way you get things done is not to take credit. It's to make sure everyone else who could be a detractor feels like they're winning something and they're getting credit. And that's how you get your agenda to get other people to execute on it. So I think that was, that was a really important thing for me to learn was just how to see myself as part of this much broader network of people who need to get things done and how to make sure that they feel just as invested. And it, it's not about me. As you've made these sort of career trajectory leaps to larger and larger teams, I'm curious what's helped you kind of make those leaps. And you mentioned mentors, maybe like Maria Judice. Were there other mentors? Were there books that helped you? What helped with that process? Maria was a through line. She was, she's always been a mentor. And she and I are still in contact. I always feel like I can call her. It's, it's really important to have that kind of sponsor in your life who's a little farther along in their career, who you can tap into for advice. I think I've been lucky. I've had a lot of really good managers and probably most of them did not have design backgrounds, which is interesting because that can go either way, right? You can have someone who doesn't understand what you do because they've never done it and they devalue it or they think they know the answer. And I have seen that, but more often what I experienced was people who knew that they were not the expert in design, but they valued it. And they kind of lifted me up as the expert. They relied on me, but also showed that they had faith and confidence in me. And that's really important. I don't know how anyone can get ahead in their career without having those sponsors along the way, whether it's formal or informal. In terms of learning, I'm a big reader, but to be honest, I don't like reading a lot of business books. <laughs> I think they're, they're, most of them aren't well-written and often have a, you know, an agenda behind them that's not interesting to me, <laughs> to be honest. So I'm very picky, but I'm a big believer in learning by doing. And I'm pretty, I wouldn't say fearless, but I'm willing to proceed even with the fear. So I guess I'm bold, maybe not fearless, but I'm bold. I will try new things. I will get on the stage in front of a thousand people. I will put myself out there and I learn that way. And sometimes it's hard, but I've learned a lot <laughs> by just trying and taking risks. You mentioned that you're a big reader. I'm curious, if you're not reading business books, are you reading other books that maybe inform your professional life? Yeah, I read a really eclectic variety of fiction and nonfiction. I recently read Breath, which is a science nonfiction book about sort of the ancient practices of breathing and what we know about the human body and how we've evolved and fascinating, probably has nothing to do with design, but helped me understand my humanity and my evolution better. I'm reading fiction right now. I joined a book group. This is how I'm meeting people out here in Armok. So we're reading Cloud Cuckoo Land right now. And I don't know, it's a big mix of things. I'm a big reader of The New Yorker too. So I'm a fan of creative nonfiction. I think if I stayed in journalism, I would want to be doing that type of writing. I read about design, but it's really great writing and great reporting. Apart from, you know, work and design related stuff, what kind of rejuvenates you, you know, outside your office life? What kind of things inspire you and you enjoy? 
Well, I'm a long practitioner of yoga and I started a meditation practice a few years ago, which I feel like there's so much for me to learn just in my own mind. So those are things that I try to bring into my daily kind of experience. Back before COVID, I used to take a lot of dance classes. I love to dance and anything physical that kind of gets me out of my head. I recently started taking a drawing class with my kids. So, you know, my youngest just started high school. Anyone who has parented teenagers knows that they just want to be in the room with the door closed and it's hard to find ways to connect. But both my kids are really into drawing. And so when we moved out here to Westchester, somehow I convinced them to take this. It's actually a teen drawing class and they let me take it as an adult. And it turned out to be this incredible thing. It's this little drawing class in a church basement. I had very low expectations, but it's taught by this world-renowned illustrator named Alan Rheingold, who has done all the portraits of all the presidents in our lifetime. And he knows just about any movie star you can name. He does all the movie posters for Marvel. And he's just a, a light. He's got all these interesting stories and so I'm, I'm learning how to draw after, you know, years and years of only doing drawing on a computer, which has been wonderful. Katrina, maybe you could go into a little more detail about the design practice to IBM and any ways you're trying to evolve it or expand it. This may be one of the most, if not the most interesting challenges of my professional career. So when I took on the role as GM of design six months ago at IBM, I spent my first week on the job just getting presented to by all of our design executives. We've got dozens of design executives now around the company. And, you know, we're not only one of the largest or the largest design practices in the world, but we've got thought leaders in AI. We have thought leaders in design thinking. We have this world-class training program we call Patterns, which has won awards it's not just designers, it's the practice, it's the approach to design, it's the way we work. And my role was to define the next chapter of design at IBM. And so I've been doing a lot of listening and, and learning. And there's something that my predecessor said early on to me, I, I asked how we were doing with design and Phil Gilbert, who's the former GM and who did an amazing job building up the practice. He said, we have pockets of excellence, we need pervasive excellence. So that one comment has kind of been the beginning of what is becoming our whole vision for the next phase of design. And I think of it as designing design. Like we're, we're figuring out how to put design to its highest and best use. I'm not just trying to convince people to hire designers. Like we're past that. Now the question is, how do we make sure that we are unlocking the value of having these designers and making sure that it's really changing all of our products and experiences that we put out in the market to be the best that they can be. The light bulb went on for me at some point when I realized you can hire the best designers in the world, but you will not get great work unless you create the conditions for their success. So that's the vision is we're focused on creating the conditions for success, making sure that we get the value out of this incredible investment we've made in design. And so I'm going to be focusing our teams on a couple areas where I feel like we've got room to grow. And one is around customer research. We design products for people with really specialized skill sets. They have highly complex, you know, sophisticated jobs and our software and products are supposed to make their jobs easier, but we can't guess what 
they need. We have to have access to these people. And we don't always have easy ways to get their feedback. So that's huge. We're going to be doing a lot of work around research, a lot of work around teams, because designers cannot be effective if they only work with designers, right? We can design the best solution possible, but if we don't have the right partners and the right relationships with product managers and offering managers and developers and data scientists and even sales and marketing, then these ideas, they'll never see the light of day. So we're going to be really revitalizing all this great work we've done around enterprise design thinking. And it's really about activating our partners to be, you know, joining us in creating these strong, high-performing teams. And then the other area we're looking at is continuous learning. And again, we've got all these great starting points. We have this award-winning bootcamp program for early hire designers. I want to expand that to include mid-career designers who are ready to move up in their career. You know, we were talking before about what kind of training did you have to be a manager? Well, I didn't have any, and I think most people don't have any, but we can fill in the gaps there a little bit and help people grow. We have a very ambitious agenda, but it's exciting. And when I look around at other companies, there's no model, like there's no template where I can say, well, we need to do what they did over at company X. So that's really exciting to me. I feel like we are figuring this out and we're kind of on the vanguard of figuring out what it means to drive total excellence in enterprise design. You mentioned that there are certain conditions that are needed for designers to be successful. Some of those are in the realm of control that you could define. Here's how we do research. Here are the you know step-by-step practices for design thinking and how we run sprints and so forth. And then there are factors that are not necessarily in our control, but maybe we could influence. So specifically, like when you're a designer or a small design team, working with engineers who have been at IBM for 35 years, you know, and they haven't haven't partnered with designers in the past and maybe don't quite understand the discipline. That can be one thing where you could educate and kind of influence to a certain degree, but you really need that partner to assume good intent that the designers have some value to contribute. There are probably other factors as well, but how in your model as you're thinking about this those conditions that designers need to be successful, how do you account for those areas where you have less control? That's a great question. And that is kind of the underpinning of of a lot of this vision. So, you know, there's three areas where we're trying to change the conditions, make the conditions better. One is around insights from customers. One is around strong cross-functional teams and then continuous learning. The teams piece is squarely in the middle of what you're talking about. And it's less about the designers doing something different. And, you know, there's things we can do better, but it's more about how do we activate the rest of the company to think like a designer, frankly, to understand how to leverage their design executive and the design leadership to make sure that they are pointing their products and services in the right direction Again, I think our enterprise design thinking program, which, you know, the team under Phil Gilbert created at IBM over the last eight years, that is one of the anchor programs that will help us do this. So one of the things I'm going to be doing is, as I start to shop this vision around, is asking everyone in the company to get their badge in enterprise design thinking. And it's really about helping, you know, empower 
our cross-functional partners to be great partners, to be on the same page with the rest of the team on how we deliver excellent products and services to customers. I will call out, you know, I'm lucky that there is a job for general manager of design at IBM. A lot of companies don't have a role like this. I think at some companies, they would call this chief design officer. That title means something different at IBM. We have different chief design officers for different divisions, but you know, in creating a general manager of design role, it sort of gives me permission to lobby <laughs> for better practices. So, you know, one of the reasons that we moved to Armok is because I don't have a design team in Armok. My designers are in Austin and Germany and, you know, all over the place, all over the world. But here in Armok is where our senior executives are. And those are the people that I want to really, you know, lock arms with them and say, listen, our teams can help you get to where you want to go. We can help you increase revenue. We can help you increase adoption. We can help you increase sales. Here's how I want to work with you to, to do that. And here's the things we need from you. A lot of those conversations are about, you know, there are blockers, for example, on some teams to getting access to customers. I see part of my job is just lobbying to remove those blockers and make sure that our senior executives see that they have a role to play in helping design be successful. I'm sure you're growing your team and you're looking for more designers because you know that's just the world we live in. It's hard to recruit people these days. Anything you want to put out there as far as just like the exciting challenges people are working on or things that would you know make a young designer want to try IBM as their first career step? There's a couple things. Why would you join IBM as a designer? What I would say is if you, you know, want to make cat videos, go to a startup, go somewhere else. But if you want to design things that fundamentally affect how people live and work, come to IBM. We have millions and millions and millions of customers around the world that use our software and hardware. And we're on the vanguard of innovation around things like artificial intelligence. Another thing I would say is I've been really impressed with how IBM as a you know, giant corporation really lives its values around fairness and equity. We're doing a lot of work and it, it's real work. It's not lip service. I really feel like there's a groundswell of belief in you know, making sure that our AI processes remove bias and create more fair and equitable experiences that our teams themselves are diverse, diverse in, you know, racial backgrounds and gender and sexuality and all the different dimensions of the human experience. And we're investing in making sure that that's happening. So it's a dynamic place to be. And it, I'm really picky because I, I think of myself as a do-gooder. You know, a lot of us in design, we were motivated by a lot of things, but we're really motivated to make the world better for others. And I feel like this is a company that lives out those values in important ways. Katrina, are there any things you're watching, reading, or listening to that are particularly inspiring to you? Maybe not even professionally, but just have your mind engaged. Yeah. You know, the one that comes to mind is the Beatles documentary. So I just finished watching all eight hours with my husband and daughter. You know, we're Beatles fans. My husband was a music writer, so we're, he goes really deep on music lore. I like the Beatles. I've always liked the Beatles, but I, I thought I'd get kind of bored by the documentary. I was riveted. 
And I was riveted, not just as a music lover, but as a creative person and as a design leader. It's moving to me. What I saw in so many of those sort of cinema verite scenes was this group of really creative people who just lived in playfulness. There were so many scenes of John or Paul like singing in a weird voice. They would play music all day practicing for their big concert or you know they had a bunch of creative projects going on. But then in between practicing when they weren't recording, they would play other people's music. That's how they rested. <laughs> you know, they would play in accents and they, there was just this playfulness and it's got me thinking how do we bring that playfulness into our work lives because we'd all be happier and I I believe it would get our brains to work better. It would make our brains, you know, consider things from different angles and come up with better solutions. Yeah, it's a great observation. That was exactly my takeaway from the documentary series oh, as well, was just the fluidity of play and the purposelessness of so much of all of those eight hours. There's like a tiny fraction of it where they're actually writing a song for an album. Yeah. But that's because they had to have that discovery. And so much of our professional lives is about a linear journey from A to B. Yes. But the creative process is not linear most of the time. It's really about discovery and accidents. Yeah, we have to find a way to bring that back because, you know, we are so task-oriented in our work lives. And yet we're being called upon to solve some really thorny challenges that, like you said, are not, it's not a linear thought process to get to a solution. We have to play, we have to consider different angles, we have to loosen up and explore. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about that and how we can kind of bring that into what we do. Fantastic. Katrina, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Design Better podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.